marriage is a touchy, sensitive, confusing, and controversial topic. And we've come to a place in Scripture where we're going to talk about it. It seems fitting. Yesterday was Valentine's Day. All about love and romance and male-female relationships. But a distinguished demographer named Kingsley Davis has said that at no time in history, with the exception maybe of imperial Rome, has the institution of marriage been more problematic than it is today. It's problematic. There's just a lot of confusion about it out there. And I wanted to share some statistics with you before we launch into the Word. Keep in mind that these are statistics. They're, they just kind of give a representation of trends going on out there. They're not anything to, to hang your hat on. But they can give us an idea of trends going on in our nation, in our world. A 2006 study showed that by age 20, 75% of Americans have already had premarital sex. And the number rises to those who don't marry late in life. The number rises to 95% by the age 44. So a huge amount of the population is having premarital sex. I know that's like a buzzword, premarital sex. One researcher says that premarital sex is normal behavior for the vast majority of Americans. and has been for decades. Some Christians say that sex outside of marriage is bad. Some people say maybe it's not so bad after all. Maybe we should look back at scriptures. Maybe it's not so bad. There are Christians out there who say that. I mean, after all, marriage doesn't seem to mean that much anymore anyways, does it? The divorce rate is about 50%. That's for Christians and non-Christians. It's about 50%. So roughly every other marriage performed in our nation is going to end in divorce. About one-third of adults living today who have already been married have had a divorce. Some Christians say that there is never a cause for divorce and that it's always bad. Some Christians say that sometimes it's okay in certain circumstances, maybe adultery. Some Christians say this is life as we know it now. This is how it, how it goes. Many marriages end in divorce. And after all, marriage has very little meaning anyway these days. And since marriage has little to no meaning, many choose not to marry at all. The marriage rate has dropped 50% in 50 years. Now there are those who choose not to marry for the right reasons because they have found that they can most joyfully and peacefully serve God to the fullest as single people. And that's good. John the Baptist was this way. Paul was this way. Jesus was this way. But many choose not to marry because, you know, it's just a piece of paper and a metal ring. By the way, I don't have my wedding ring because I lost it in the ocean. <laughs> this may be a good time to make that clear. People will probably see a preacher with a kid and no wedding ring and think, what is going on here? <laughs> I am married. That's my wife right there. <laughs> Couples live together, have sex together, have kids together, have responsibilities together without the whole thing of marriage. 
called cohabitation. Cohabitation. This lifestyle of living together with someone of the opposite sex and even having children together has increased 1,100% in the last 40 years. Now again, these are statistics, so I don't know how exact that is. But I think that does point to a trend. People are just sort of setting this whole marriage thing aside. Almost half of these unmarried couples living together have children. Some Christians say this is bad. Some say this is the new way. I mean, after all, it's just a ceremony. It's just a man standing up here saying, I now pronounce you man and blah, blah, blah. It's just a piece of paper. It's just a piece of metal that you slide on your finger. I mean, what matters is love. And besides, the divorce rate, odds are good it's going to end anyway. So, I mean, marriage has really not that much meaning. Connecticut, New Hampshire, Oregon, Vermont, Washington. What do these states have in common? They all recognize and allow same-sex marriages. A man and a man being married. A woman and a woman being married. Men are fighting for this chance, picketing in the streets for, for the right to marry another man. Women are picketing and fighting for the right to marry another woman. Isn't it interesting? The heterosexual marriage is just being just set aside, but the homosexuals, they want it. They are fighting for marriage. That's just a little tidbit that I find interesting. So some Christians say this is bad. Same-sex marriages. I mean, after all, God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Y'all ever heard that? <laughs> some say it's bad because of that. Some say it's none of our business what people want to do. If people out in California want to have same-sex marriages, it's none of our business, they'll say. How does it affect us? What do you care? Some say it's good. It's their right to do this. Some Christians say that we should spend a lot of energy taking these things seriously, and some say this isn't really the important stuff. People will do what people will do. Let's just let go. So there's sensitivity over this issue. And there's controversy over this issue of marriage. And there's confusion. Huge confusion over this issue of marriage. And it affects us all here. I mean, what's a Christian to think? If you look around, has anybody ever read blogs? It's short for weblogs. It's people's thoughts. There's thousands of them out there. But you can find seemingly you know, conservative Christian people who come from all different Schools of thought about these things. You know, those of us who grew up in this church probably think most people think like we do, but they don't. There's lots of different ways of thinking about this. So what's a Christian to think? What are we to do? What are we to think? Well, what do we do every time there's confusion? Every time we need light on our path? We turn to the Word. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Our passage today and this whole sermon series this month is going to shed a lot of light on this. So I was very excited about today, and I'm very excited about next week. And like I said last week, this sermon is incomplete without the previous two and without the one to come. The one to come brings it all together. So, please come next week. So let's focus our minds. We're about to study God's Word. 
Let's focus our minds. We're in Genesis chapter 2, where we read earlier, verse 18. And this is our third week of our four-week study of the first three chapters of Genesis. So the ground we've covered so far, we learned about God, that He is eternal, that He is the Creator, that He is the awesome, glorious, primary character in this whole story of the Bible and the whole story of history. God. It's all about God and His glory. Last week we zoomed in a bit and we learned about man being created in God's image. And we sort of started to get our minds around this concept. What does it mean that man is created in God's image? And we talked about how there's kind of two compartments of meaning for this. There's the functional aspect that man is created with God's authority to rule over creation. And he's given the task of ruling over the animals in creation. And then there's the resemblance aspect. That just like Seth was in the image of Adam and resembled him, in some way we resemble our God. Last week we talked about it's because we're creative and able to do creative work. So we are authoritative and able to rule over creation. That's where we've come from. And I said there's one more really important aspect of our resemblance of God that we're going to talk about this week. And that's where we are today. And that's the aspect of the fact that we are relational. That we are relational. So let me read a couple of the verses here. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground... The Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the cattle and to all the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. Okay, so God created everything. He created the earth and the sky and the stars and the birds and the fish. And the oceans and the cattle and the vegetation and all these things. And then he took man and he put him in the Garden of Eden that he had created to cultivate it. We talked about that a little bit last week. So he put him there. And this is day six of creation. Every day before this, with the exception of day two, but we're not going to talk about day two right now. But the things God created were good. He stepped back and he said, it's good. But here we see that something's not good. There's a problem. It is not good for the man to be alone. So God parades all the living creatures past Adam's for Adam Adam to name. It's part of this whole authority Adam has over creation. He names them. He's the one authoritative to rule. But through this process, it becomes more and more apparent that there's no one suitable, no suitable counterpart for Adam. And in that sense, he's alone. And the word says that's not good. He had no suitable helper. This word helper means basically just one who helps. It's as simple as that. The animals weren't suitable for this. I mean, Adam was to rule over them. The animals couldn't help him in that task because they sort of were the task. He needed an assistant, an associate, a partner. I mean, just picture Adam's up on a hill. Maybe. That's how I picture it. 
And God's bringing all the animals through for Adam to see and to name. And we know that the animals were to reproduce in their own kind. So it's very likely that there were at least two of each one. And he sees these, these couples of animals pass by. And he names them giraffe, elephants, what have you. And he notices a, a trend. There seem to be two of each kind. But he's alone. He doesn't have anything like that. There's nothing like him in all of creation. He needed a counterpart. A complementary, corresponding partner. This word for helper is also used of God. When God helps and assists and saves his people. So before we go any further, go ahead and wash out of your mind any idea a woman being made to fulfill this need of a suitable helper is that the woman is this subservient slave to the man. There's dignity in this, not being a slave. This is a blessed helper. A helper for which Adam is deeply grateful and desperately in need of. A saving kind of helper. So, let's pick up at verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. So God causes him to go into a deep sleep. God takes from his rib his side, and he forms into a woman. He doesn't take like from his foot or something. He takes from a very intimate spot from his side. And we had, there was a guy, a former church that I went to, that when he'd hugged you, it always felt a little too intimate. And I finally figured out why. It was because his hand always ended up right there. Whether it was a guy or a girl, Meredith and I both felt a little uncomfortable <laughs> hugging because he would hug and he would wrap his arms such a way every time that his hand was like right up here. It's a very intimate spot that God takes from Adam and makes into woman. So this is his suitable helper, Woman. This is who God makes to fulfill his need for a suitable helper. A complementary, corresponding counterpart. Woman. She is a lot like Adam, but unlike Adam at the same time. See, there's a different kind of unity that comes from diverse counterparts than those who are exactly alike. Now, I just mentioned earlier, I have no musical abilities. But I know the difference between... When people sing in unison, and the type of unity you have when people sing in unison, literally, I just think it means one sound. And the type of unity you have when people sing in harmony, when you have all the different, whatever you call them, bass and tenor and soprano, all those things working together in unity is harmony. And your ear recognizes the depth of that unity, runs deeper than simple unison. So why did God create woman to fulfill Adam's need for suitable help? Why not create another man? Who better to help a man rule creation than another man? I mean, surely they'd see eye to eye. They'd, they'd be together on this thing. They could get it done. He created a woman like Adam, but at the same time altogether unlike Adam. In doing it this way, he made it possible for a type of relational unity, a profound type of relational unity that otherwise would have been impossible. 
It's like corresponding puzzle pieces that lock in together. That's what he's doing here. That's what he's created for Adam. So, we are made in God's image, and this means that we are authorized and able to rule over God's creation in relational unity as men and women. In relational unity as men and women. In other words, the united relationship of a man and a woman has some special significance because it portrays the image of God in some special way. Now, what does all this have to do with the image of God anyway? Relational. How does that have anything to do with the image of God? Well, there's this concept called the Trinity. And it's one of those difficult things that our minds just can't really quite wrap around. But it's the idea that God is three individual persons and one God. He's the Father. He's the Son. He's the Holy Spirit. Individual, but all God. It's just one of those things that our, our little minds just can't quite grasp. Now, I've heard somebody say that trying to understand God is like trying to pour the Atlantic Ocean into a thimble. And that's what this feels like. It's like it's just my brain doesn't have space and compartments to, to understand this. But something about man and woman has to do with God's image. And this seems to be where it is. I mean, look back in verse in chapter 1. Verse 26. Just look at all the weird plural singular stuff going on. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And then 27. God created man in his own image. In the likeness of God, he created him. It seems to switch from plural to singular. What is that all about? I mean, maybe he's thinking about himself and angels. Maybe he's making them in the image of himself and angels. Or maybe it has to do with this Trinity idea. Of make, make man in our image as, as somehow in the image of the Trinity. This is just kind of a hint. This, this passage isn't a, a sure proof for the Trinity. But it's a hint. Know how it emphasizes Adam and Eve together as God's image in 27. God created man, singular, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, singular. Male and female, he created them, plural. It just seems strange. But remember, none of this is by accident. Remember how we talked about the whole structure of these chapters and how it's put together with a design and a purpose? So we have to take seriously why they include what they include and and how they say things. The whole purpose and structure seems to flow towards man being made in the image of God. Remember we looked at the repetitions and how everything was smooth and it broke at the creation of man and that he was in the image of God. And then right after it says that, it talks about male and female. It flows right into the idea of them as male and female. Now, in this sort of Narrative history, this Hebrew writing, they had a little device that was customary that they would do. It was almost like a headline and then a following article. They would say in general, real quickly, a statement, and then later expand on it. So from my understanding, I don't think it's too much a leap to look at this, God created man in his own image as the headline. And then chapter 2 is the article, expanding on that. And what is chapter 2 all about? All about Adam ruling over creation and Adam and Eve in relationship together. So it all builds to this. 
until the climax at the end of chapter 2. For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So man and woman ruling creation as one through marriage is the climax of creation. And this beautiful, carefully designed image of God in mankind is seen through man and woman and how they are together. They're one, like a lock and a key, or one mechanism, or like a violin and a bow, or one instrument. They're one. An author named Scott McKnight puts it this way, The loving oneness of God finds earthly expression in the loving oneness of Adam and Eve. When people are one with God, self, others, and the world, the glory of the one God illuminates all of life. Now we need to understand God to understand our life. We need to understand these things to navigate confusing times in our lives. These truths help us to think through the confusing things that the world throws at us. We have this tendency to want to just get out of the Old Testament and get into the New Testament. Where it seems like it comes easier and we know more what to do and what not to do. Or we want to get out of this altogether and get ten steps to a healthy marriage. By some pop psychologist. We want so bad these easy fixes. But God has designed things for us to get to know Him better. And for that knowledge to flow into how we see every aspect of our lives. That's what clears the confusion. So, what do we think about premarital sex, divorce, cohabitation, same-sex marriage? Instead of stewing about these things and how bad they are, wallowing in it, let's rejoice. Let's rejoice in our God. Let's rejoice in how beautiful God is, how awesome His creation is, how wonderful His image is in man and woman. United together in marriage. How beautiful it is. Let's take them one by one. Sex before marriage. There's been a lot of people who've said a lot of things about don't do this. Don't have sex before marriage. Young people, don't have sex before marriage. Older people, don't have sex before marriage. It's meant for marriage. And I believe that's true. This flesh of my flesh, this, this uniting, that's included. Let me read a C.S. Lewis quote about this that I think is helpful. The inventor of the human machine was telling us that its two halves, the male and the female, were made to be combined together in pairs. Not simply on the sexual level, but totally combined. One, this relational unity combined. The monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside of marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union, the sexual, from all the other kinds of union which were intended to go along with it and make up the total union of the male and the female. The Christian attitude does not mean that there is anything wrong about sexual pleasure any more than there is anything wrong about the pleasure of eating. It means that you must not isolate that pleasure and try to get it by itself any more than you ought to try to get the pleasures of taste without swallowing and digesting by chewing things and spitting them out again. In other words, what he's saying is, this whole idea about don't have sex before marriage 
We get ourselves pigeonholed in where that's all we know is, well, you're not supposed to do it. The Bible says don't have sex before marriage. Where's that verse? You have to have this whole truth to understand it. It's because sex is a beautiful part of marriage. Just like you can't isolate taste from the chewing and swallowing and digesting of food, you shouldn't isolate that from the beauty of the total union of marriage. About divorce, we get pigeonholed into just saying divorce is wrong, don't divorce. God hates divorce, don't divorce. And we forget the whole glorious truth behind that to where we just look like judgmental idiots just saying don't do it, don't do it. God hates it. But what about the whole glorious truth behind that, driving that? Let's exalt the wonder of God's plan for marriage and the beauty and the glory of it. It's lifelong unity. Let's focus on our own marriage and not just judging others for what's going on in theirs. What's the best way to keep our nation from discarding marriage altogether? Remember those statistics at the beginning? They just indicate that people just don't care about marriage. What's the best way to counteract that? Is it to go pointing fingers at people's faces? Let's build wonderful, God-focused, God-like marriages in our own lives. Let's pray for those around us in our church that their marriage would be wonderful and God-like. And that the glory of that, the image of God seen through that, would just shine. Same-sex marriages. This, I think, is a good example. I saw a really angry commentator on TV. I cannot remember his name. You guys would know who I was talking about if I could. But it was after Proposition 8 didn't go through in California. And he turned to the camera and he was just irate. And he was saying, for those of you who do not support the right for homosexuals to marry, what is it to you? What do you care? How is it bothering you that you need to go and make sure they can't get married? How how will we respond to that? How will you respond to that? If you haven't already been confronted with it, you will. How will you respond to it? Well, it's gross. Man with man, woman with woman. It's gross. Or one step better, will you say it's wrong? That's why we don't want people to do it. Or a step better than that, it's sin. That's why we don't want people to do it. Or one step better than that, marriage is meant for a man and a woman. Okay, but still, what's it to you if other people are doing it? Why do you got to be all in their business? That's what this commentator and that's what this whole school of thought is saying. And they're angry. And they see us who think that it's wrong as judgmental people who just want to ruin everybody else's lives because we get on our high horse about things. And there's Christians who are getting in the other camp. There are Christians who are saying, you know what? This is wrong to keep people from their right to marry. Oh, it's getting so confusing. It's getting so confusing out there. The Christians who say these things say, you know, Jesus said love your neighbor. Can you not love your neighbor even though they're homosexual? And just let them get married and have commitment and have some peace and happiness. 
We are supposed to love our neighbors. We should love them. We do love them. But what about the command that came right before that? The two greatest commandments. What was number one? Love God. Love God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and all your strength. Love God. Man, we just swooped that one right under the rug. Love God with all your heart, all your mind, your soul, and your strength. We're to love God and His image and how it's shown through the miracle of marriage. It's a thing of beauty that we should love and exalt. We religious people get so screwed up. We worship Him with our lips, but our hearts are far from Him. And that adds so much to the confusion in the world. Because then they just forget about whatever the Christians are saying. They're just a bunch of judgmental hypocrites hypocrites anyway. Because we say things with our lips, but our hearts don't have a clue. And I think it really comes out in this family stuff about marriage. It really comes out in this debate. And we pray and we say, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like these people in California. These men who are attracted to other men. These women attracted to other women. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not like those sinners. We get so messed up. We forget that we're supposed to be loving God, worshiping God, adoring God, getting to know Him through His Word. If we could get that right, if we could get this image of God right and see who He is for who He is and how that translates and trickles down through His image in us, And through his image in marriage and how sacred marriage is, then we'd be looking at it rightly. And instead of just all the negatives, don't do this, don't do that, we would be building godly marriages and we would be exalting the beauty of it. People could see clearly that we're not just a group of people against certain things. We are all for and worshiping all out with all of our mind and our hearts and our strength. God. Now, does this mean that we should go quietly along while these debates go on? And that we should go quietly along while the very viewpoint of what marriage is shifts and disintegrates in our culture? No, I don't think so. I I will not go quietly along while while our nation embraces the confusion and delusion and destruction of God's image through marriage. We should not go quietly along when that happens. I don't want my son to grow up confused on this issue. My son's generation generation is going to be that much more confused than ours. I don't want that for him. I want him to grow up seeing God-like, beautiful marriages. And through that, he'll see the image of God. And it will help him to understand who God is and to worship him. Because that's what marriage is all about. Why does God do what God does? For his glory. Why would he... Create woman for man and institute the first marriage for his glory. Marriage between a man and a woman is the pinnacle of creation. It represents God's image in a very special way. That's why it's beautiful and sacred. That's why we should fight for it. Now in closing, I want you to let this sink in and I want you to let the questions bubble up. The question is like, This all sounds great. I'm a Christian. My wife's a Christian. 
But our marriage does not seem to me to resemble the image of God. What's that all about? Questions like, why is it so hard to be a good husband? Why is it so hard to be a good wife? Or why doesn't my husband love me the way the Bible says he's supposed to? Or why doesn't my wife love me the way the Bible says she is supposed to? Where does my singleness fit into all this? What about me? I've been divorced. All these questions are going to start bubbling up. Let them bubble up. Some of us in here may be thinking, what about me who's experienced same-sex attraction? Let those questions bubble up. And the main question to let bubble up is this. We're Christians. We sang a lot of songs about Jesus this morning. Where does Jesus factor into all this? That's the big question. That's the question that we're going to get to next week. It's going to conclude all this, bring it all together. The sermon is incomplete without next week's. And I hope and pray that I haven't made too much confusion out of this passage today. If you have questions, look back into it, read it. Ask ask me if you have questions about this. But please come next week. We're going to study chapter 3 next week. We're going to get to the root of what happened to this beautiful thing God created, His image through marriage. We're going to get to the root of what to do now. And in the meantime, I pray that God will bless you and that he'll reveal himself to you through his word and through his creation this week. And that he'll help us all to understand better.